Thank you, Ronnie. You might have recognized that that song was the story from Mark chapter 5, which is where we're going to be today, uh, looking at that very woman, the woman, the story that's called The Woman with the Issue of Blood. It's, it's a story that shows not only um, Jesus' amazing healing power, but also this woman's faith. And so from that story today in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 24, I want us to learn four lessons of faith and of action, um, faith and of life that we can see from both Jesus and also from this woman. Uh, now before we read this passage, let me just give you a little bit of context. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus is kind of on the move. At the beginning of Mark chapter 5, he's on a boat. He gets off the boat. He immediately is met by the man who is possessed by demons, the demons, the legion of demons. And so he heals that man. He then hops on the boat again. He goes on another little trip, gets off the boat. As soon as he gets off that boat, that time, he is met by a man named Jairus, who is the ruler of the synagogue, who has a daughter who is deathly ill. And so he asks Jesus to go with him to heal his daughter. And so Jesus sets out on the road to go to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. And in the midst of that journey, we come to Mark chapter 5, verse 24, where we see the story of this woman. So let's pick it up there. It says in verse 24, that he went with him, that being Jairus, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse." She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked round to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we look at this story today, one that I know some in this room probably hold very dear uh, because of the story of this woman's faith and how you healed her. God, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts, that we would see from this story uh, the lessons, the applications that we need to see so that we would walk in faith in you and so we would live our lives like Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Four lessons I want us to see from this passage. First lesson being this, that we first ought to turn first to the Savior. Look back at verse 25. Let's read those first couple of verses again. It says that there was a woman who had suffered, who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, we're not really told exactly what this was, but we can just assume it's a hemorrhage of some type that would not stop bleeding. Verse 26, she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. And so here is this poor soul who is at the very end of her rope. It says here that she had suffered much under the hand of the physicians, that she had gone probably from doctor to doctor, spending every dime that she had trying to find that one magical cure that would finally take away her disease. 
Ancient Jewish literature tells us that they believed that there was about 11 different cures for this one, poss- for this one illness, most of which were superstitious in nature. They would involve pouring all these different ingredients together, saying these certain phrases, and then drinking these ingredients. And so it's likely that she had gone from one to another, and each doctor had said, oh, I got the cure for you. This is what you need to do. And she would give them the money, they would do the thing, and then nothing would happen. But after wading through all of that pain, all of that agony, all of that disappointment, all of that shame, finally she turned to the Savior. We read there that she had heard reports about Jesus. Now, I don't want to assume too much. I don't want to read too much into this story. I don't want to just assume that this woman had never cried out to God in her 12 years of pain. But I can't help but notice the way that Mark arranges this statement. He says here that she had done all that she could do earthly. She had gone to every doctor she could possibly do. She had done everything possible, She'd done, and, but yet her health continued to deteriorate. And then she heard of Jesus, and she turned to him. Now, isn't that the perfect picture of how the lost world approaches pain and suffering? And isn't that how we do it at times? Something bad happens. Let's imagine we're going through life, everything is going fine, and suddenly things take a turn for the worse. Maybe it's a job loss, maybe it's a problem at home, maybe it's problems with a child, maybe it's a relationship that is on the rocks, maybe it's a problem at school, teenagers, and suddenly we begin to worry, we get anxious, and we try everything we know to do, and we wear ourselves out trying to find a solution, and then finally we run out of solutions and we say, dear Lord, help me. When in actuality, we ought to turn to the Savior first. Why is it that it oftentimes takes tragedy, that many times it takes hitting rock bottom for someone to turn to Jesus? Have you ever realized that? That so often we have to come to our very end before we finally look up? I think about this. This past week, we remembered September 11th, 2001. One of the darkest days, if not the darkest day in our nation's history. And if you are old enough to remember, you likely remember everything that happened that day. You probably remember exactly where you were and where you saw the news and all those things and how it all unraveled. But do you remember what took place that night and in the days to come? I do. I remember being a college student at Faith Baptist Church, and I remember our pastor opening the church and people poured in by the droves to pray. I remember churches all over this nation did the same thing, and people came to the house of the Lord, many of whom didn't even know the Lord, but yet they found their way to church because tragedy had struck. Now, why is that? Why is it that we seem to wait until the last minute? Why is it that we always seem to wait until we just can't do anything else on our own? I guess it's pride. I don't know exactly what it is. It's probably different in every situation, but we seem to think, I can handle this myself, and then we hit rock bottom and we turn to the Lord. And then so often what takes place next is things begin to go well, and then where where do those people go? They turn back to their own ways. Think about all those people that came into the house of God back in those days in 2001. And once things settled down, where did they go? Many of them went right back to their regular old ways. You know, several years ago, I remember Brother Jack preaching a message 
about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, he had noticed that a pattern that they would go through a cycle. You probably remember this, Brother Jack. Hopefully you do. If not, I'm going to give you a refresher on your own sermon. And so he, he, he noted, and it's very true, because as he preached it, I thought, man, I wish I had thought of that, <laughs> that they would go through a time of obedience. And then as they walked through a time of obedience, eventually they would start to wander. And then in their time of wandering, God would bring about judgment upon them. And when God would finally bring about judgment upon them, then suddenly they would turn back to God and they would begin to walk in obedience. Well, then they would walk in obedience again. Then they would wander. Then God would bring about judgment. And so on and so forth, the cycle would go. That it seemed like it was only judgment that would bring the nation of Israel back to God. That they never would come to it on their own to say, maybe I need to turn to the Lord. Why is it? You see, instead of falling into that cycle ourselves, we must remember to first look up to the Savior well before the tragedy strikes. Several years ago, um, as my boys were beginning to get older, I decided I was going to build them a little fort in our backyard. It kind of looks like a deer stand um, with a slide and a swing set on it. And so my dad and I, one of our teenagers, when they began to build this thing, and uh, built it out of pressure treated pine. And lo and behold, not long after I built it, the carpenter bees found it. Any of you have problems with carpenter bees at your house? They come around, they start boring those little holes. And those things began dive bombing us in the backyard. They began eating up my fence and all this kind of stuff. And I, you know, I would sit out there with a, with a tennis racket at times, hitting these, these bees, you know, just playing, playing bee tennis. And it went pretty well, but I never could seem to get ahead of it. And then I heard of this, this little thing right here. It's a bee trap. I picked it up at Stockdale's, not to advertise for them, but I thought when I picked this thing up, I thought this is a gimmick. This is never going to work. I was like, there's no way that this thing is going to catch a bee. But sure enough, it did. I put two of these things out of my yard, and I began to collect this pile. And at one point, before I emptied this thing out, I think it was about halfway deep with bees and with wasps. Now, how does this thing work? You might know this. The bee goes in the hole, he goes down, and then he will die trying to get out of this jar going sideways and down, never looking up to get out. Now, if only he would realize that the way of escape is to go up, he would find the hole and he would get himself out. But instead, he will go down and he will go sideways over and over and over again until he finally exhausts himself and he dies. Isn't that how we are? That we will beat ourselves up trying to solve our problems on our own, going every which way but looking up to Jesus. But we need to remember that we need to look up to the Savior. Whether that be in times of trouble or times of triumph, whether that be in times of pain or times of pleasure, our first call shouldn't be to an earthly cure but to a heavenly Christ. I read this quote this week that I thought was, was, was good for this situation. Sorrow looks back, worry looks around, but faith looks up. Second point we can learn from this story is this, that we ought to reach out to the hurting. Let's look back at verse 25 one more time. I want us to think about this woman's condition. Ronnie, when she sang, she kind of alluded to this. It said there that there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, if you were to go back to the book of Leviticus chapter 15, you would read that this woman's condition rendered her ceremonially unclean. The fact that she had this continuous bleeding meant that she was ceremonially unclean. 
And for in translation, this is what that means. It meant that she was excluded from the religious life of the nation of Israel. She was not allowed into the temple. She was not allowed to come into the court of women, as it was called. She could not come anywhere near that. Secondly, she was not allowed to touch anyone else. If she did touch someone, then she was. Then those those people would also be considered ceremonially unclean until they went through the cleansing rituals, which took about a day. And on top of all of that. The fact that she was totally excluded, she was, there was also this rule that she had to make herself known, that she had to declare her presence when she came into a public place. And so just like a person with leprosy, she would have to cry out unclean as she entered a place. And naturally, if you did that, what do you think people would do? They would turn the other way and try to get away because they did not want to touch her because they would be unclean. Some of the commentaries I read this week said that if this woman had been married, it's likely that her husband had abandoned her because he couldn't touch her. And so here was this poor soul who was not only suffering physically, not only drained financially, but she was also suffering emotionally. She had probably been abandoned by everyone that that had cared about her at any point in her life. And so it explains why when she came to Jesus... She snuck her way through the crowd. You see, she didn't want to make her presence known. She didn't want for people to know that she was pushing her way through. Why? Because if they had known, they would have kept her away because they would not have wanted to touch her. And secondly, she was likely afraid that if she had talked to Jesus and said, Jesus, I have this issue of blood. Can you heal me? She probably was afraid that Jesus would say, no, I can't. Because if I do, if I touch you, you'll make me unclean. And so here was this woman who was covered in hurt, covered in shame, covered in sorrow. She had no one there to care for her. But regardless of that condition, we're told here that Jesus heals her and he restores her. You see, when he healed her, he not only cured her of a physical disease, he cured her of a social disease in a sense. She brought her back, he brought her back into the life of Israel. He brought her back into right relationship with everyone that she knew. And, she, and he took away her emotional hurt, her emotional pain. Now don't think for a minute that this was an accidental healing, as if she brushed up against Jesus and Jesus couldn't control it, and all of a sudden, whoop, healing power went from him into her and she was healed. Not at all. I believe that Jesus knew what was going on. He knew every soul that was in that crowd, and he knew what was taking place there. And I believe he cares for her, not only that he, in, in the way that he heals her, but in the fact that he calls her out. And we'll talk about what he says in a minute, but specifically here I want you to notice that he calls her daughter. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Do you know that's the only time in the New Testament Jesus called anyone daughter? No other woman in the New Testament received that title but this poor, now blessed woman. Now, I think the best way that we can describe this is to say that Jesus was very much interruptible. And this is what I mean. Jesus is working his way through the crowd. He is on his way to heal a man's daughter. That seems like a pretty noble task, right? Like, you better be, time is of the essence. You better be in, in, in a hurry, getting there, working through that crowd. It is a crowded place there. He's having to push his way through. You could probably have been in situations like that at times. Maybe an airport, maybe at a ball game, you're trying to get the concession stand, and there's so many people that you're just kind of elbowing your way through. So they are nudging their way through the crowd because everyone is pushing in on Jesus. 
And this woman grabs his clothes. She is healed. Jesus could have easily just kept on trucking, but instead he stops what he is doing in order to care for this soul. He wasn't interested in just putting out a healing. He wanted to touch a soul. He wanted to help this woman. 1 Corinthians 14, 4 says like this. It says, love is patient. And I think another way that we could say that is to say that love is interruptible. And just like Jesus, we must be people who are willing to allow our days to be interrupted. They're willing to put aside what we're doing to help the hurting, to help the lost, to help those in need of our Savior, to do the work of the ministry. I mean, if you think about the life of Jesus, wasn't it just one interrupted moment after another? I mean, even in this one chapter, remember I said he got off the boat, immediately a man with demons comes up to him, heals that guy, gets back on the boat, gets off the boat, another man catches him and says, I need you to heal somebody. He's working his way through a crowd, then this woman interrupts him. Or think about one of my favorite miracles is whenever Jesus was in a room teaching that time and all of a sudden they start, people start tearing the roof off the room in order to get someone to Jesus. I would call that an interruption. I mean, if we were in here preaching a sermon today and all of a sudden a hole came in the roof, I think we would probably start looking at it. It's sort of like that rainstorm that time a few months ago. Y'all weren't in second service. A few, a few months ago, I guess it was two months ago, we were right in the middle of second service and I was preaching and the bottom fell out. And about 15 people suddenly jumped up and ran out the door because they'd realized they left their windows down. And everybody's looking around, what's going on? But it was like this interrupted moment, and we, we didn't really know what to do. But here, Jesus shows us through his ministry that all along the way, these people would come and interrupt him. And what did Jesus do in those situations? Man, I don't have time for these people. All these needed people pushing in on me, ain't nobody got time for that. That's not what Jesus did. No, he stopped, and he ministered, and he healed, and he gave. He had compassion, and he was willing to put aside his agenda to minister to others because he saw that his agenda was really the Father's agenda, and God the Father would put those people in his path, and we ought to see it the same way. I heard a story this week about a couple that's been visiting our church. I won't even mention their name, but they run half marathons and stuff like this, and a while back they were running a half marathon, this husband and wife, And as they're going through this race, they realize that they were way ahead of pace. Like they were making great time, and they thought to themselves, man, we were doing so well. We're just, you know, moving through this marathon, making making really good time. But as they were going, they noticed a young man that was over on the sidewalk, and he was falling over. And he was having a heart attack. And so as they're running, as other people are passing by, because they're not even noticing what is going on, this husband and wife, who happened to be nurse practitioners, stopped and ministered CPR and saved this man's life. This man was just about to have a baby. He ended up naming the baby after this couple because he was so indebted to them because of the fact that they saved his life. You know, think about this. God put them on that point of the course at exactly the right time to save that man's life. Had they been running any faster, they might have been past that point before he ever fell out. Had they been running any slower, it might have been too late for them to do anything by the time they came to him. But instead, the Lord put them on that path so that they would cross that man and stop and save his life. 
Now, here's the truth. I, you know, most likely, we are not going to pass someone who is physically dying today. I sure hope not. I hope when you're not standing at the lunch line at Wendy's or wherever you might go, someone's having a heart attack. I hope and pray that doesn't happen. But I can guarantee, I am almost certain that every day we come across people who are in need of the love of Jesus. They may not be physically dying, but they're spiritually dying. We come across people who are hurting, who need to witness the compassion of the body of Christ and need to feel His love, and that love comes through us, His people. And as I thought about this, as I read this passage, this is what God pressed on my heart, two things. That may we as individuals never be so busy, that we, may we never be so caught up in our own lives that we would miss the divine appointments that God places in front of us to minister to the people around us. And secondly, may we as a church always be a place where hurting souls know that they can come and be cared for. That we would never look at the hurting as a, as a nuisance or, or as a pain, but we would see these people as people that need to be cared for, people that need to be loved. Because doing so could be the difference between life and death eternal life and eternal death. Third lesson we can see from this story comes in verse 30, and that is that we ought to proclaim Christ publicly. Look in verse 30. It says, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, why did Jesus put this woman on the spot? Doesn't it seem a little harsh? I mean, you read this at first and you think, man, this seems a little cruel for Jesus to do that. Here is this poor woman who just wants to be healed. She just wants to sneak away. She doesn't want any, any, kind, of, any kind of notoriety here. She just wants to come in, be healed, and get away from there. But Jesus stops and he begins to cry out, who touched me? He could have easily just given her a wink and a nod and kept going. But instead, he stops and he challenges her to confess her faith in him. He challenges her to give testimony of what he did in her life. We read that she came forth in fear and trembling, but she came forth and it says that she told the whole truth. And in that moment, guess what happened? she removed any possibility of doubt that Jesus had healed her. Everyone in that circle heard her declare, I had been bleeding for 12 years, and now it has stopped because of one touch from this man. It points to the truth that we must have a faith that not only believes, but a faith that speaks of God's goodness. Just listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. It says, because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so at salvation there is a heart that believes and a mouth that confesses. Both are necessary. A heart that believes that Jesus is the Savior and a mouth that is willing to say, He is my Lord. And so it ought to be as we continue to walk in the faith. Just continue, just, just consider for a moment the impact that this woman's testimony had. Here she is declaring to this crowd, look, I'd had an issue with blood for 12 years, probably tears rolling down her face. 
And she said, look, I, I could find no cure, but I touched this man. You can imagine that as soon as they said that, probably the crowd said, oh, and stepped back for a moment. But then she said, he healed me and made me whole. Just one touch. It's likely that in that moment, there were people in that crowd that were convinced about Jesus because of what they had seen. And think about this. If she had never said a word, we wouldn't be reading this story in the book of Mark. It's because he stopped and he challenged her and she confessed that Mark records this story and tells us that this woman had been healed. And so for 2,000 years, people have been impacted because of this woman's boldness to declare her faith in Jesus and the good, good things that he had done for her. Now let me ask you this question. Who is going to be impacted because of the confession of faith that comes from your lips? Who is it? Who around you hears you declare what, of what God has done for you? That should be something we do every single day. Last lesson I want us to see is that we must remember that faith is what matters. I said earlier that many of the cures that they believed would, would take away this disease were superstitious. And really and truly, you could, you could even say that what this woman did had a little bit of superstition in it. The idea that she could just touch some clothing and it would heal her, that comes across as a little superstitious, right? We even see it a little bit in the book of Acts with Peter and Paul. There was this belief that a shadow could heal you or that clothing could heal you, these kind of things. But Jesus clarifies that it wasn't superstition that healed her in verse 34. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And so Jesus did not heal her because she touched some clothing. He healed her because of her faith. Now she might have been slightly off in her understanding of the power of Jesus, but her faith was dead center on Jesus Christ. Her faith was very much she didn't have it all figured out theologically, but she knew the one she ought to be reaching for. And that's all that mattered in that moment, was that her faith was in Jesus Christ. And that paid off, because 12 years of suffering, shame, and pain were all wiped away with one touch of Jesus' clothes. Now just think about all the other people that had bumped into Jesus that day. It says there was a throng of people, a crowd of people that they are wedging their way through. Needless to say, many people bumped shoulders with Jesus that day. And I can guarantee that probably some of them were sick in some way or shape or another. Maybe they had a cold, sinus infection, whatever it might be. They were sick in one, one way or another, but were they healed? No, only this woman who reached out in faith. Why? Because faith is what matters. Jesus didn't heal. He doesn't answer prayers or open doors just because we happen to be in the right place at the right time or we happen to do the magic thing. He does so because we have faith. You know, if we read down farther in this chapter, we find out that Jairus' daughter dies and he begins, to, I'm sure, to worry like, okay, we've been, we're too late. And Jesus tells Jairus this in verse 39, chapter 5, verse 39. Look down there. He simply says this, Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. It reminds me that every day there are a lot of people that speak the name of Jesus, that may rub shoulders with him, in a sense, but don't truly have faith in Jesus. They know the name, but they don't really believe in it. So this morning as we come to a time of invitation, 
I first want to offer this invitation to those in this room who are not believers in Jesus Christ. You may know the name of Jesus, but my question to you is, do you have faith in Jesus? Faith that leads to salvation. Are you placing your faith and trust in Him to remove the guilt of your sins? And are you placing your faith in Him as the Lord, the Master, the Ruler of your life? That is what's required for salvation. Today, if you, have that, if, you, if you have that faith and you've never made that public, I would challenge you to come down this aisle today and declare to this church and to the world that you're placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And for those in this room who are Christians, the invitation is simply this, that we first need to have faith in God's ability, that we may be going through times in our life, going through hardship in our life, we need to have faith that God can answer those prayers, that God can act in that situation as dire as it may seem. And we need to turn to Him first. But we also need to have faith to believe that God can use our everyday moments, that God can use our, our comings and our goings to impact other people for faith. Would you bow with me as we pray? Father, I come to this time and this service today just asking you that if there are those in this room who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we pray that today they would put their faith in Him. That they would see the faith of this woman and they would challenge them to want to have faith in Jesus too. And Father, I pray that they would have the courage to walk down this aisle and make that known. And Father, for the believers in this room, I pray that we would be people of faith. That we would trust our Savior and that we would want to declare to everyone we know our faith. That we would want to tell everyone we know how you have answered prayers in our lives, how you have moved us, how you have opened doors, how you have closed doors even. God, I pray that we would be people of the word and people of words. That we would speak your truth. That we would look for the hurting. That we would declare the saving message of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. And Father, I pray in this time that you would move, that you would act you would speak. We know that you're here. We pray that we would feel your presence. And it's in Jesus Christ we do pray. Amen. Please stand as we speak.